You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Redfield. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest on the podcast is writer and filmmaker Sean Paul Murphy. Sean Murphy um, has worked with me, um, been very lucky to collaborate with Sean. He's a film editor. He worked uh, to edit my first uh, feature, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that I wrote and directed. He's had a prolific career as a screenwriter. Uh, as a writer, he has a new novel out called Chapel Street. And um, I wanted to know more about his adventures in screenwriting, writing for the faith-based film industry. Um, it's been a wild ride for Sean, and um, we finally sat down and talked about it. My upbringing is, I guess, typical for a lot of Americans. I was packed off to Sunday school, much like I was packed off for summer camp. I um, did make First Holy Communion, but um, my exposure to Christian filmmaking or faith-based filmmaking um, was television. When I was a kid, there was a marvelous show called Marshall Ephraim's Painless Sunday School. Um, Maybe one of the reasons that I'm an actor. Marshall Ephraim uh, wore silly costumes and hats and uh, retold Bible stories uh, in a very um, sort of uh, gentle or painless way. And of course, there was television showings of movies like this. Yours was the face I saw above my cradle. The only mother I've ever known. But my feet are set upon a road that I must follow. From director Cecil B. DeMille. I will teach thee. Man shall be ruled by law, not by the will of other men. Slaves are mine. The Academy Award-winning film. Let my people go. Of the unforgettable definitive Bible story. I know not his God, neither will I let his people go. You have not obeyed the Lord. This night, the Lord our God will deliver us from the bondage of Egypt. They shall die under my chariot wheels. So let it be written, so let it be done. Starring some of film's greatest legends. Greatest epic of all time. Behold his mighty hand. Those who will not live by the law shall die by the law. The Ten Commandments. So thanks to uh, Charlton Heston and Cecil B. DeMille and William Wyler, um, that was pretty much it screenings, annual screenings of the Ten Commandments and um, Ben-Hur and other Hollywood pictures. But the industry changed and blew up, uh, the the faith-based industry, um, with uh, the publication of certain books and adaptations of those books into films. 
um, Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, the growth of um, video rentals in video stores, and uh, the eventual introduction of DVDs. An entire industry bloomed, and um, Sean Paul Murphy became a part of that as a screenwriter. This interview was conducted by telephone in May 2021. Here's Sean Paul Murphy. The first script I sold, that's a different question than the first faith-based script I wrote. You know, I've written a ton of scripts before any of them got made, any of them got sold. My um, second script, I mean, this was really primitive, was a end times film I called The Mark. And um, that got Hollywood attention. My second script, it was probably 1989. You know, it got genuine Hollywood attention. My third script also had serious faith themes in it, and that was optioned. And um, CAA offered to um, offered to um, represent me on that. But I chose to go with another script at another agency. But the uh, first um, faith-based film that I wrote for money was a movie called Hidden Secrets. That's the title it came out with. It was, um, gosh, I don't know, 2006. You know, I wrote it on commission. It was a, um, the instructions were very clear. I was supposed to um, write a script with, um, it was supposed to be mainly a comedy. It was supposed to be like the Big Chill. In fact, that's the working title of it. Christian Big Chill, touch all the hot button issues of the day in it. And it's supposed to be uh, mainly comedy, and I like writing comedy with someone else. So I brought my friend in, Tim Radishak, to write it. We ended up writing a bunch of other ones after that, you know, together separately. You know, he is continuing. I had gone in a different direction. You said that this script, Hidden Secret, which became Hidden Secrets when it was released, um, what was the company? And um, you said it was commissioned. So uh, did they see other samples of your work or when they were talking to you? How did the relationship start? Oh, it was kind of funny. I, um, I released my first, my, the first script that was produced was a film called 21 Eyes, and it was a mystery, a mystery with a lot of comedy. I co-wrote with, um, you know, Lee Bonner, a television director, and um, it got, you know, it, we got an advance, you know, it you know it was on Netflix and this and that and everything, and it was released by Vanguard. But I was so dissatisfied with the marketing of the film. And at one mm-hmm. point, they had so many likes and dislikes on um, on Netflix. I was like, um, you know, if each of these people had bought a DVD, we'd all be rich. You know. Yeah. So um, I'd already had. You know, I am a Christian. I already had written faith-based film. So I decided I was going to write, rather than write another independent film, I was going to write something for a more contained audience that I felt I could market to directly. So I wrote this script called I, John, a faith-based film, which I was planning to do really low ball here in Baltimore for about, you know, maybe 300000 and maybe raise 500000 and spend 200000 on marketing. Yeah. You know, those numbers were very naive. But um, so I wrote the script and I was very happy with it. And um, but then I decided so I was going to research the market. 
And um, I was going to the local blockbuster at the time, pulling down every faith-based film I could see. And I finally caught, saw a couple films like Mark the Six, you know, um, Six Six Six, the Mark Unleashed, um, End Times film, another End Times film called The Moment After. And I looked the producer up, and I'm like, you know what? I should see with these people what they think of my script because they're more established in the market. And films by this guy, Rich Cristiano. But I saw a guy, uh, Bobby Downs, um, email. And he's pretty big. They, you know, well, he's his brother, Kevin Downs, has this big deal with um, Lionsgate. They were involved with the company that put out, if I, I can only imagine, which was a big hit a couple of years ago. And um, I wrote Bobby Downs because I could find his email. And I got a response from a guy, Dave White. And mm-hmm. um, I didn't associate him with the actor in these movies that I had seen, who was also producing them. And at the time, I was marketing a horror film and a faith-based film. And I just got this email from uh, David White, and he said, hey, send me your script, David. And I'm like, I didn't send anything (laughs) to some guy named David White. And I didn't know what script he was referring to. So that's a really awkward thing, because you don't want producers to think you're just flooding Hollywood with, you know, different scripts. And so I I had to discreetly ask him. You know, which one did you want? And he told me. He goes, but I'll read the other one, too. So but I, so I sent him the horror one. And uh, not the horror one. I sent him the Christian one. I, John. Yeah. And um, he wrote back and he, and he said, look, you know, I really like this script. And I said, um, so do you want to do it? And he's like, no. And he goes, um, he goes you know, we're, we're starting a new company. It was him, Kevin Downs who was also an actor, and Bobby Downs, the producer, and they had a company, I think, called Signal Rock. Um, and he goes, we, he goes, we're only interested in making films that we can star in, you know, David and Kevin. And right. so there's no roles for us in this movie. He goes, so, but we'd like you to write, you go, we really liked your sense of humor and your attitude in this, uh, in this script. So we want to know if you want to write, um, write, um, a film for us. We want it to be like the big chill, but we really want it to be funny. You know, we want to have a sense, you know, <laughs> sense of humor. And yeah, I yeah. said, well, if I write comedy, I'd like to bring someone else in with me because I like to bounce stuff off. And they said, well, we don't care who you bring on as long as, you know, we don't have to deal with them, you know? So, um, right. I called Tim. It was like, he was already in bed and, and he, he was kind of skeptical that anyone would pay us to write a script. I had never written a script <laughs> or anything at this point. And um, he goes, but, well, you, but, you had, I, but you had known Tim Ratajczak for years from, from college. college. And, and, and uh, you know, <clears throat> yeah. I've read his scripts. I mean, I knew he could write. and I knew he was funny because, you know, mm-hmm. we would write our spec scripts and we'd hand them back and forth to each other, you know, as the way yeah. writers do. And so I knew, I knew he would be good for it. And, um, you know, he said, well, let me think about it. And I say, you got 15 minutes because I'm supposed to call him back in a half an hour. So I called him <laughs> back in 15 minutes and he said, okay. And we were off to the races. But the funny thing happened is by the time, by the time we were writing the script, because our initial uh, contract was with Signal Rock. And um, by that time, by the time it was close to production, that company had broken up. 
Kevin Downs and Bobby Downs had formed their own company and they made some other movies before, you know, they split into different things. And David teamed up with the, um, some other people and they formed a company called Pure Flix, which and for this, a while. Right. This, was, this David White is David A.R. White. And yeah. uh, the, the major partner he now, and this would have been, so, so this would have been a little more than 15 years ago, I guess, or about 15 years ago. And, yeah, 15 um, years ago, probably. His his uh, partner in this new company, PureFlix, is a guy named uh, Michael Scott. Yeah, is that yeah. Him? It was or... the original partners were, you know, uh, David A. R. White, the creative, Michael Scott, yeah. the producer, Russ Wolf, who died of ALS. He was sort of like the money guy. He was based in Arizona. And and they had a guy Byron Jones who was like one of the chief mar- you know marketing guys of Christian films. He was based in Canada, and they had some silent partners, mainly Randy and Liz Travis. And when Le- Randy and Liz got divorced, I think um, I think Liz got custody of um, PureFlix because she's like her. She's always at all the premieres and all, and he's not so. I don't know what the deal is, but it seems like she's still, you know, and she's not, and she's like more openly involved. And uh, if you look at any of their biographies, they, they never mention, um, they never mention Byron Jones because that broke badly. And they always talk about the, there were these original partners. And I'm like, boy, they're not mentioning Byron, <laughs> um, but you know how it is. Because I think they're called, I think PureFlix is now called Pinnacle. Um, yeah, PureFlix, after they got a wash and all that God's Not Dead money, um, they set up a streaming service. Well, they didn't set it up. They bought something called IM Films. I think it was called IM Films. And, um, you know, having the religious con- connotation there. And they set it up as PureFlix Films, and they were set it up as a streaming service. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not a pure Flix insider at that point, but I always heard that it was really struggling in order to get content and that basically all the subscriber fees had to go to marketing, you yeah. know, base, you know, because if they didn't continually market, you know, the attrition was killing them. So eventually I know they were, I've heard even from David that they were selling, trying to, you know, get out. You know, I heard numerous things. And eventually they were bought, PureFlix, the streaming service has been bought by Sony Affirm, you know, mm-hmm. and PureFlix used to always say that they were the only, um, the only streaming service that was not backed by deep pockets. Yeah. And uh, I know, I believe they tried to sell to Hallmark, they tried different things, but um, they eventually uh, picked up by Sony Affirm, Sony got the PureFlix, PureFlix name. Therefore, PureFlix had to um, call them. PureFlix, the production company, was not purchased. So their production company had to become something else. So they became Pinnacle Peak, which is right. to me Pinnacle. sort of like saying Rock Stone or like car <laughs> automobile. And, uh, well, Pinnacle Peak isn't at but, the top of the Paramount Mountain? No, I don't know that. <laughs> well, let's, the funny back thing is... So- Mm, let mm. me go. Let me here's a, let me tell you a Paramount story. When we finished um, 
the first two films they did was one Hidden Secrets first, and another one with the way called The Wager, starring oddly enough Randy Travis. I didn't know he was a silent partner at the time. There was a lot of interest in faith based material, and we, I, you know, they, you know, I talked a lot with David White, you know, a couple times a week, and you know, and. I know Paramount was interested in um, releasing Pure Flix's material. So was MGM. Yeah. So was someone else. I mean, Tim and I were dying because it was like, oh, my God, we'd love to put out a film with the MGM lion roaring and, at the head of it. But um, yeah. they ended up going with a um, – and but the problem was, like, Paramount would not give them carte blanche. Paramount would not say, we will release everything you would do. We, they, yeah. you know, Paramount wanted to see – the movies, you know, yeah. and they went with this imprint from um, the Weinstein company. I forgot the name of the company. It was some sort of video distribution company. And these guys never saw a cent. Mm. You know, the Weinsteins, you know, I'm not, I hope I'm not going to get sued. I think Harvey's got more important things to do. But I was telling, because <laughs> I was talking to David White all the time, I was like, David, you can't go with the Weinsteins. I go, read, you know, down and dirty motion pictures. I go, these guys wake up early every morning to find ways to cheat filmmakers out of their money. And they're like, right. no, no, they've changed. And who's the um, Bob? Because I heard Bob Weinstein's going to a Bible study now. And I'm like, don't believe any of that. So they did oh, fine wow. with them. And um, they were, the company ended up bankrupt. And what? Well, what I was told by David is that they never made any money. Eventually Vivendi bought out, bought out that company and they were not required to pay previous royalties. I believe they were cheated out of six figures on each film, you know, not paid. And, um, I think they got it. Vivendi was only obligated to pay him $1,500 per picture. They got the film rights back. So, uh, so that's Hollywood. That's Hollywood. Now, a lot and this, of this is, is a, hearsay, this is, but this is what was told to me. Yeah. But what we do know is that um, the so-called faith-based film industry, which essentially is Christian films by Christian filmmakers for a Christian audience, that Hollywood <laughs> or mainstream and and I think I think the point I'm grappling grappling with is that it seems to be always the it's obviously the suits the business side but specifically marketing and distribution that really shapes what viewers see and so there is a growing market particularly twenty twenty five years ago in the home video market of being able yeah. to reach an audience with a niche film. So faith-based films become an umbrella, a big blanket term, the way you would say horror film. And when you yeah. say horror film to uh, a moviegoer, that can mean anything. That can mean a gothic film that is light on sex and violence, or it could mean a gore-filled slasher. It could mean a, a, a mainstream supernatural film like The Sixth Sense. In other words, there's a broad rainbow of colors of kinds of fantasy films under the, the, the canopy of horror film. All of these genres 
it's easier to market firstly with the genre is it a comedy is it this then secondarily you have an actor or a director whose name means something and the faith-based industry the way i felt it kind of come around uh in in my life and career really with the explosion firstly with home video and then you've got like uh uh, uh, David A.R. Uh, uh, White and uh, his his partner Russell Wolf and, and Michael Scott formed something called Pure Flix to be able to do exactly that. And um, so you have an explosion of companies making faith based films. In, in well, that I, time. I can give you I can give you a little breakdown of how I see it. Um, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Well, there's been Hollywood. Hollywood's always had faith, kind of faith movies, the big biblical epics. They've always been very successful. Obviously, right. these smaller companies couldn't do it. Now, like in the 70s, Billy Graham would put out an occasional feature film that would play in the theaters because somebody can play that. You know, Mark and I, for those who are not listening, are both from Baltimore. We're both from the same neighborhood. But they would like play right. at the arcade, which is one of our local theaters. You might see The Prodigal or something like that. A Billy Graham film, you know, but yeah, which back back in the like, day, with yeah. back in the day with hardtop theaters, a small scrappy uh, distributor could target booking into these. Uh, in other words, it was much more open, much more. It was easier to get a film into theaters up to a certain point, uh, and this included drive-ins and in the South and in the Midwest. Uh, small and they are independent films could actually be booked in hardtop theaters and this is this is uh, starts to quickly go away by the time multiplexes in the 70s start to come in but yes anyway that's my historical yeah so, but basically there was um i would say that there were um, two strands there was a company and it was based in canada i forgot cloud not cloud nine it's cloud something or other that they were, I think they were Canadian, and they bought the rights to like um, the Left Behind books. And I bet you know that author. Um, I think the author once said that those Left Behind movies should have been left behind. But they like bought those, <laughs> and, and one of the things they were doing. Um, well, before that, there was these guys, uh, the Cristiano brothers, and they built the paradigm of the modern independent faith-based film. You know, a low-budget film that its main audience was. Um, you know, VHS and later DVD, and they would four-wall it around the country, you know, with church support. And nice. um, they made that. In fact, that's where David A.R. White got his start. I think it was in Second Glance, when David A.R. White was an actor on um, Evening Shade with Burt Reynolds. He was like a, um, he was a regular on the show. He was Burt's son's, like, best friend for a couple of years. So, you know, he was in a couple of, you know, he was in, you know, a number of the episodes. He was on salary for the show. He was a regular. And one summer he was off, you know, he got to make this film. And um, so the Christianos built that, that built that paradigm. But then this other company, they started building more thriller type. You know, the Christiano films were really kind of straightforward, you know, preaching films. And then these other people, they released films like, um, well, like Left Behind. If you look them up, you'd see the other films. Um, 
And they were building, um, and they were putting like stars in their movies, you know, like maybe right. stars who were like popular 10 years earlier. And they were put, and they were placing their films in like as thrillers, uh, you know, in, you know, science fiction and times. So they were building, you know, more entertainment films and they were still going kind of strong, like they tribulation. I wish I could remember the titles. You know, um, yeah, yeah. they were going strong right around the time I was doing it, right around the time Pure Flix was starting. And the smart thing about David A.R. White, I mean, David wanted to star in every movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it was clear David's goal was to become a movie star. You know, he, yeah. you know, he wanted to yeah. star in all the movies. I mean, that's why he was making the movie. It was not a mission for him, as he told me later. But um, he was smart enough to know that he had to surround himself with like Eric Roberts and people, Stephen Baldwin, you know, people like that, you know, Cynthia Waltros, you know, whoever, whoever they could get, you know, John Schneider was like the, the cast was, of um, Hidden Secrets was uh, Tracy Melchor was um, I had Belt Bold and Beautiful. She's a soap opera star. John Schneider, yeah. Dukes of Hazzard, um, Corin Nimick, who was, um, you know, Parker Lewis can't lose. Reginald Bell Johnson, Die Hard, and you know TV and all. So I mean, he was he was surrounding himself with you know really known actors, and I think yeah. that's where um, that's where he was smart, you know, in, in that he was doing that. So uh, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty good marketing thing, and it was a business paradigm that would work, you know, while you could still sell while DVDs were still the primary delivery system, you know, prior to streaming, you know, and they, you know, um, a couple of my films, hidden secrets was a phantom event, you know, like they phantom, they like, they have 2000 theaters or something and we'll show, you know, um, West side story or some opera, you know, and we didn't have that many theaters, but we had, um, like 300 theaters, for Hidden Secrets, yeah. it played on like a Friday and a Saturday. And I saw it at two different places, you know. So, um, you know, so that was the equivalent of four walling. And I believe the money was split 50-50 between Phantom and, um, you know, the money that you go to the theaters, 50-50 between Phantom and Pure Flix. And I, I should so, point I mean, out to the listener, I should point out to the listener that um, what four walling means Typically in the industry, um, producers make a film and they then strike a deal with a distributor. If they, uh, and then the distributor has deals with theater chains and theater owners and gets the film, spends a certain amount of money on marketing, whether it's the posters and the uh, prints, uh, and this is before, you know, electronic projection, video projection in theaters and television ads and anything else. And then the film back in the day in the seventies would be rolled out territory by territory. And then very quickly in the seventies, it became sort of blanket booking 2000 theaters across the country. But four walling is the filmmaker who made the film then goes and rents a theater, the four walls of the theater for a specific finite time then does all of the publicity to get the local people into that theater. And there is, uh, if they have paid a rental on the auditorium, on the theater, 
then they're keeping 100% of the box office or where they've made a split and the theater. And 100% of the box office. In those cases, I believe, on all the concessions (laughs) and everything, too. Right. And so you could, and there were a lot of filmmakers throughout the country who did that. uh, Sun Classic. And and those are films that I saw at the uh, beautiful arcade theater in our old neighborhood. But... um, so, but times are quickly changing, and you you mentioned in this time frame in these last years, you know, the blockbuster taking over basically the video home rental market at that point, um, and finding a thriving and the faith based industry finding a thriving market now in home video and being able to also get their films. Too. Yeah. Also, too, Christian bookstores were also a very Christian booksellers family, you know, um, bookstores and, you know, whatever one the Baptists would own. So they they would have that. And it was easier to market to this audience, you know. So it was basically, if you made. Oh, and by the way, by the way, but this this dovetails with what I think you're about to say in a different way. And and if this independent filmmaker was four-walling, and as you mentioned, a got a church involved from the locality. The only hoop to jump, the only sensor to jump is the approval of that church. And if they would back it, then all then who they could market to would be all of the local congregation to go to the theater to see the church, uh, see the film. So oh, you're was, jumping to you're jumping to the I'm day. sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, then but the Rich Cristiano and all, they did that. You know, they did mm. that on a local and regional area, rolled it out like the old days. Right. But, you know, it came once streaming was coming and now the Christians and still now they still buy a lot of DVDs. People joke that they're, you know, slow. They're not converting to streaming the Christian audience. But um, there's an argument I, for physical media. Let's not forget. OK. <laughs> yeah, because eventually once once physical media is gone. Trust me, all streaming prices are going to go up. And with the mm. multi, you know, with the more streaming services, once they weed out the smaller ones, they're all going to go up. You know, yeah. People are like ditching cable for, you know, this piecemeal stuff. I know are already paying more than they were for cable. I'm like, okay, was that a good deal? But that aside, so eventually it came to a point where you had to you had to go go big or go home. And Pure yeah. Flix bet the farm literally because I was still, I was still in the Pure Flix camp around the time they were setting up God's Not Dead because they were asking me to bring investors in for the, um, not the movie, but for the um, the marketing money, and basically mm-hmm. they were promising a return when the mark because they needed the money to market the film, and they basically they were going to give up. You know, I talked to them and I got their paperwork that if if they did not return the amount they said, essentially that people would end up owning pure flicks. So, I mean, they literally bet the farm on um, God's not dead. And, you know, which, and they won, which but is basically just again, for the listener, God's not dead came out. Uh, the first God's not dead because it is produced yeah. sequel uh, to uh, 2012, I think. So not too long ago, Kevin. Yeah, Torbo probably. It's the, been a long time. The, uh, I've been in, Kevin I've Sorbo been embroiled as a witness in a lawsuit. Regarding well, but hang on, hang on. Only wow. 
last year. Yeah, but let's come. Let's come right. Back. We're going to get to that. You, wow, you just jumping really <laughs> far ahead. Um, let's, yeah, but let's so jump. essentially, here's how here's how Christian films work now. You know, because I have you know, Dumber Nuts, I John script that I mentioned earlier, that Pure Flix saw. Yeah. Well, that script ended up winning with something called the Kairos Prize, given out by this organization called Movie God. It was a 2012 winner of the $50,000 Kairos Prize. Now, there were three winners, so, and I wasn't number one, but I still got $10,000. So to me, that script's paid for. You know what I mean? It's my wife's like, yeah. wow, they gave you $10,000 for a little story you just made up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Okay. So it, that has been optioned, and, and, and I hear the money's in place. But because of COVID, they're not going to shoot. They have a couple deals. The people who have it now, there are a couple deals in place. And the money's supposedly in place, but everyone's waiting until they can shoot it. It's going to have to be shot in Arkansas for a number of reasons. And, you know, I'm familiar with it and this and that. And so that, oddly enough, looks like it could actually happen. But um, what happens now is if you're going to make a film, sorry, let me turn this other phone off. Um, if you're going to make a film, a Christian film, you know, the investment's higher because of the marketing, because you have to go, like a normal film, you have to go to 2,000 theaters. So right. they're doing exactly what you were saying. You know, while it's in script stage, they are bringing the script to the leaders of the mega churches and big national ministries, you know. And basically, they get the approval of the ministries because if suddenly some big ministries said your film is horrible and people shouldn't see it on Christian radio or Christian TV, your movie's dead. So right. you go out and get the approval of those people. And the mega churches and the larger churches, what you're doing is you are asking them to make a commitment to buy a theater, you know, to buy a theater on the opening day. Yeah. Or at least a screening. There might be five churches in your area. And, you know, and, and you're getting them to buy a certain number of seats, you know, and that's, and, and that, then that's the guarantee. And that's how the films become successful. You know, so it's a, it's a marketing, the marketing plan in a sense is less to the audience than to the churches and then the ministries. And I know that they've been taking my script around. I don't know the details of it, but I know the company that has it, one of the per one of the partners in the company, one of the producers, has pretty deep ties in the evangelical church circles. And, you know, I believe it's his job to go around and, you know, show it off to people and all. So that's what, well, let's you know, jump. that's... Let's, let's jump back for a second, but take this as the jumping off point. So there is this vetting process with a project that they that a producer production company thinks they would like to do because it would work with this audience but the gatekeeper the script will be vetted so that a certain kind of marketing thing can kick in otherwise the film will not make any money and not so it, it is this well, they, process. Well, you wouldn't look at it in terms. You see, you're looking at it in terms of marketing. You know, yeah. the they would never say that. The church people would never say that. 
they're looking at it <laughs> as a message. And is this, a, is this a message that they want their congregation to hear? And you earlier in your first question about, or one of your first questions about rules. And here is the big rule for faith-based films that you break at your peril. And that is you can't put anything in a faith-based film that a pastor wouldn't be comfortable showing in his sanctuary. Right, right. So that is, that by doing that, you, if you do that correctly and you do the right project with the right people, you could do okay. You can actually make a lot of money. However, so you know, yeah, you are, However. you are, and this is the problem is because you are ultimately going to make a film that is not going to challenge anyone because any rough edges, any anything, uh, you know, I would say that art is supposed to challenge you. You know, good art, you know, you it's know, supposed to, it's you. supposed to, okay, let's back up. You're a screenwriter. A writer is an artist, the filmmaker. Yes, a piece of art is to challenge the artist in the hopes that it's an engaging, entertaining, challenging piece for the audience. And it is also about a certain amount of risk. Because if we, and I don't care what the story, what the genre is that we are telling a story in, it's potential, unless we are a very brilliant writer and a very brilliant filmmaker, and I'll get to that in a minute, because not all of us are, and every genre has a ton of crap in it whether it's the horror industry or whether it's the faith-based industry, there's a lot of bad movies out there. And if you yeah. are narrowly trying to follow a formula or a pattern, and again, I'll keep bouncing back for the mainstream listener um, <clears throat> between horror and faith-based, because again, there are a lot of colors, but if you went into making a horror film and you've only seen two in your life, uh, or let's say you have the opposite problem. You are a cut and dried black t-shirt, goth wearing gore hound. And that's what you think a horror film is. Well, you've so limited yourself. And do yeah. you have the chops to make a really great gore movie? Not necessarily just because you're a fan. So I think you're kind of what you're describing for a filmmaker and a screenwriter is the possibility of just backing yourself into a corner to make it safe for that audience. I seem to remember also hearing, and I think you told me this, you taught me this in talking about that in general, there were three, what would you call them? And I'm wondering if these, um, these sort of soft rules were, were in place when you did the commissioned hidden secrets with pure flicks, but they're basically, there were basically three kinds of faith-based films. There was end of day stories. And then what were the other two storylines that were often realized that were done to death? Well, well there's, the done, there's, 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 biblical adaptations. There are, uh, with with um, starting with the book series that became the movies, uh, you know, end of days scenarios, 
And then, so go ahead, uh, help me out here. And then there's the sinner coming to Christ story. You know, there's basically sinner, biblical Sinner stories. comes to Christ, finds God. Yeah. Yeah, end time story, and sinners come come to God. And and there, but also too, it's also the pastor with the crisis of faith too. We can't crisis leave out of him. Yeah. Right. So, um, and here here's the problem is. Um, well, they can't really tell the smaller people, and people. And there's a lot of Christian films been hit in the theaters before the theaters closed. You know, unfortunately, yeah. they all tend to gather around the same time of the year and like suck up each other's dollars. But you know, they, you know, the norm. The it's very. It's much like more like horror films than you realize, because the average maybe that's why I keep going the there is an analogy. Yeah. Yeah, the only pe- the people who go for every for every Christian film that you that comes to the theaters, there are probably thirty to fifty that are out. You know, um, people are selling like you've been to horror conventions and all. You know, it's yeah. filled with filmmakers with stacks of their films, and that's the way it is also in Christian films as well. There are. Dozens and dozens and dozens of filmmakers who are making a huge number of low-budget films. And I go to some Christian film festivals. Like, I'm a frequently a guest at churches making movies, which some great folks up there, and I often speak, you know. Mm. And, you know, I had to beat people around the heads and shoulders with the truth that they often don't <laughs> want to hear. <laughs> and um, But, you know, there are so many people. And... And the reality is, too, most of these people, particularly the people making the really low-budget ones, don't really care about making films that are going to make any money or be films. You know, they are strictly message for it. Right. You know, so to them, it's evangelism. Now, that's what it was sold to me. It's sort of like, you know, we're making films that are going to win people for the Lord. But yeah. as, after making a couple films, I realized that that was that was total BS because you know um, we are making films that nobody but Christians will see. So essentially, what we're making, and I did a, a my most po- popular blog I ever wrote is called "Building the Faith Based Ghetto," and I discuss if you're basic, you know, what your, what your options are if you're a faith-based filmmaker and how evangelism is not, generally it's not the goal of anyone, you know, because when you think about it, you're marketing these films to the churches. Like even if it's in a theater, even if it makes $70 million, you know, 95% of the people who go to see it are already Christians. So right. you sit there and tell, show someone's story and how they come to the Lord and you know, hope everyone watching the film is going to come to the Lord. Well, they're already with the Lord, you know, and to me, that just became such a waste. You know, I've had films that were very successful, evangelical, you know, but it's because of the way ultimately, like I did this one film called the, the encounter, you know, Jesus in a diner. It's like, it's like a twilight zone episode and they're zero. It's easily the most popular film I've ever done. You know, I get, you know, Facebook and this and that people from all around. I could tell when it was released in a new country because people would see, like suddenly I'm getting a bunch of Facebook return requests from Nepal or Venezuela or 
Zambia. You know what I mean? So I knew when the film was being released around the thing, you know, and I'm getting all these amazing messages about that film. But the thing was, it got on Netflix and it was not marketed on Netflix. It was marketed more as a mystery. Yeah. And people were watching it. You know, it was not marketed as a, you know, as a faith film. It may have had the spirituality tag on it or something, but, you know, it was described in a way that normal people would see it. And um, so, so the industry took off. So the industry, the faith based industry, harms itself ultimately by being the faith based industry. In other words, Exactly. In your no, it doesn't harm time. itself as a profit. It doesn't hurt itself as a profit-making industry. What it hurts it's itself also, is its stated goals. It can't achieve the stated goals with the films it makes. You know, but it's but but, but and maybe it doesn't as a uh, on the business side of things, except that it does create a ceiling that it will theoretically then never necessarily break because it doesn't go quote unquote mainstream. In other words, yeah, exactly. In, in in your time of writing screenplays that were Christian themed, the industry, the technology of the industry changes greatly in delivering to the consumer, to audiences where there are, you go to the uh, the blockbuster, you go to the video store, there's a market there. It then goes into, we, we see the rental change and now we're into streaming. So my point is, when you get started, mainstream Hollywood, the major studios, they peak, they, they get uh, curious about two things. The success of the left behind movies and, well, the, uh, and, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. The amount yeah, and there was money, another film right? called The Omega, The Omega Code. Yes, The Omega Code. Big shock. Yeah. And so mainstream Hollywood, big the industry, which is all bottom bottom dollars. The the is the bottom line is the bottom is the dollar, and they all begin to create little subdivisions within distribution and marketing and are looking at the Christian market very hungrily, and they either commit in some cases, and I think this is when you mentioned Paramount, I think Paramount was doing this, and um, none of them really rose to the occasion, I think, because um, you'll look at, there was a a brilliant article recently about um, uh, a Netflix show that was on the surface, by all reports, doing very well, came roaring out of the gate with viewers. Um, but unlike some shows like The Queen's Gambit and others that rose in numbers over a period of time, this one rapidly shrank. They immediately canceled a season two. This would be the supernatural Sherlock Holmes thing called The Irregulars. And this shocked people when this when this show was pulled because, again, it's money and it's viewers so what I'm what I'm wondering is is that, or or what I'm what I'm understanding you saying as I see the other parts of the industry at work, is that indeed, if the scripts are constantly saying the same messaging over and over, 
regardless of the quality of what you can do within that, there is this limitation because <clears throat> a potential film, uh, there are people who may be listening to this because they were intrigued by screenwriting, may think there's a magic formula to make some bucks writing a Christian-based film. Uh, but um, suddenly, a film does not have a chance necessarily to break out mainstream. Uh, there there exactly. will be a ceiling for it. Um, and, and this is what you're talking about. How quickly, what was your journey then from completing and turning in the script to what becomes Hidden Secrets to how many, how many scripts did you write for, for those guys? Well, I did, I did 12 produced features for them. Wow. And I think I wrote, let me think, three other full scripts, which I was paid to write, that did not get produced, which is odd. Well, I mean, that's a tremendous ratio, you know, 12 produced, yeah. three non-produced. And um, I took a couple more ideas to, um, I did extended, um, nah, there was another two, and like some treatments. By the end, they were actually paying a, a decent amount of money, you know, so um, so even, for, I, even I to take it you. out to treatment. Yeah, please don't ask me. I'll post, yeah, I'll gentlemen, post gentlemen, don't things. ask. Gentlemen, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but it yeah. wasn't bad. I'm going to guess that it, it wasn't bad. It was healthy. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. Well, because, here's, uh, here, no, no, here's the thing. I was very lucky in the sense that, you know, I do other things like I'm a film editor. And yeah, that's yeah. a very lucrative trade in a sense. And um, so I would say there was probably only one year at all that the scripts made more to me than the, um, than the editing. I never gave up the editing for the writing, you know, right. and, but at that, this, this was before I was working for television networks and I was mainly doing commercial work and I was doing features right. for fun. And um, so, you know, I had more time for, for script writing and all, and I, I was always paid and, and know, the Christian never, films, were they, um, and this is just, I wanted to touch on the art of them for a moment, because I think, you you know, Sean, yes, you are a friend. You, uh, for those just listening for the first time or who knows Sean, Sean cut a couple of my features and I loved working with him, making the final drafts of these. Well, thank films. you, sir. You're welcome. And so I genuinely like your writing and think you're a good writer. Were the assignments were you then once you once you become a regular writer for Pure Flix, um, are are you then assigned things? Are they pitching you think we would like to do something like this, or do you pitch them? Mostly, where, <laughs> yeah. That there were two there were two there were two ways stories were generated at Pure Flix. One, it was like the first one I did. They rip off like a. Um, they're a, not as uh, bad as film. the asylum, but they tried to disguise it. No, a well, the asylum, the asylum but... would make out films to be released, like you know, they, you know, Kong, King Kong was going to come out, and they would do Kong, you know, King of Kong Island, and right, they would right. make a, a quickie movie that would come out the same weekend and capitalize on that publicity. Pure Flix yeah. was different. Like, um, hey, we want to do a Christian big chill, and. Right. Um, 
I can't think of what the other ones, you know, it's sort of like we did a film called Marriage Retreat. That film got made because literally David and his, his now ex-wife had left the theater from seeing the Vince Vaughn film Couples Retreat. And nice. he calls, you know, <laughs> and, and he calls me and says, hey, I just saw Couples Retreat. I want to make a Christian version. Let's call it Marriage Retreat. There you go. You know, and they did another one that was a, uh, it's called What If. That was a ripoff of the uh, Nicolas Cage film Family Guy. Now, they offered the family man. They offered yeah. Tim and I that one all the time. But we, generally speaking, did not want to do the things that were direct ripoffs. Now, right. like The Encounter, they wanted us to rip off a Christian film called The Perfect Stranger. You know, and I yeah. wouldn't watch it. And so that's yeah. one way. they would be. Basically, David White would see movies. He's an actor. Would see movies I want to be in that movie. Started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he would okay. make his own version of that movie, you know, but he could only make Christian films. He could only make them low budget. And well, the be other glad way that was. I, be glad I never wanted to do Ben Hur. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had have found a way to do it on green screen. It would have been fine. <laughs> With big wheels in the parking lot. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the other way was, and this is is that there would be investors who are interested in the mission. And right. they would look for somebody who had an existing company, and Triflix was making a lot of movies, and say, hey, you know, me and my friends, or me, or, you know, I want to make a film about this subject. Can you make a film about this subject? Their response was, do you have X amount of dollars? Yes. Then the answer was, yes, we can make a film about that subject. And yeah. um, usually they gave um, Tim and I, <clears throat> you know, just assume, even though I did write some stuff without Tim, that, uh, you know, Tim was involved in all of these. I don't want to <laughs> not give him his credit, but he still mm -hmm. works with mm -hmm. him. So if I'm saying anything bad about him, I don't want him to be associated with any of the <laughs> statements I'm making. Tim is a perfectly loyal and happy PureFlix man, I'm sure. So, um, but it would be like, they wanted us, um, you know, to like Sarah's Choice was a, um, you know, pro-life film. And the investor caught, watched some debate on um, CNN and he thought um, he thought it was um, that the pro-choice person was misrepresenting the argument. So he called mm -hmm. PureFlix and said, I want to make a pro-life film. And he had this idea it was going to be like a point-counterpoint people on the news having an argument. Mm -hmm. One of them changes the other person's mind. And right. we got like – most of the stories they gave us were like um, like a paragraph long or something. And we looked at that and said, well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And um, so uh, usually, in fact, Tim did never wanted to see those original stories like – when we did the encounter, somebody who got story credit, even though we didn't use anything from their um, treatment, had this very long treatment, and um, it was filled with all the Bible quotes and this and that, and then, and we were like, um, you know, Tim didn't even read it, and I'm like, yeah. we can't do, you know, we're not going to do this. And I called David. I said, not only because I'd, I'd read it because um, I had to read everything, and I'm like, David, this, this sucks. Also, too. It didn't have a, it, it was like four different stories told, you know, one after another. I'm like, that doesn't even have a real arc. I said, we can't. He's like, oh, just throw it out. And that's generally yeah. what Tim and I did. 
they'd give us an idea. If we liked it, we went with it. If we didn't like it, we'd throw them out and pitch something else. But even when we pitched something else, we had to put it in the context of a movie. Like um, the sequel to The Encounter, originally we were going to do a sequel and that was going to be aimed more at the youth market that would have had a genuine evangelical purpose. And it was like the breakfast club. So it's like, okay, the next one's going to be the breakfast club. But instead of Mr. Rooney or whoever it is, you know, you know, with the kids, it's going to be Jesus, you know, this this (laughs) substitute teacher there doing detention on Saturday is Jesus played by Bruce Marciano. And that's what we were going to do. But then the encounter became so successful. David had to star in the sequel. He wasn't in the original film except a little cameo at the end. So we oh, had wow. to go with another idea so that David could star in it because the role of Jesus yeah. was already taken and everybody else was teenagers. So uh, <laughs> we came up yeah. with another idea that was based on the Humphrey Bogart film, um, The Desperate Hours. And uh-huh. um, I started writing that script, but then they had the, then people wanted to go to Thailand because some of the production people from Pure Flix had helped make some films um, that were shot in Thailand. They wanted to go back and meet some people. So they're like, they have to do something set in Thailand. And David's like, and I have, and I, it has to be starring me. And I have to be either a criminal or a corrupt cop. So, I mean, those are, those are the parameters. And I have them being trapped in a beach resort in um, Thailand and with, with, you know, this guy who turns out to be Jesus. And um, <laughs> and it was sold to the investors as a remake of, um, as a remake of Key Largo. Interesting. Yeah. So we went from one, for that film, we went from one Bogart film to another to Bogart another. film. <laughs> you know, because they're like, I don't know if this is going to work structurally. And they were like, yeah, it's, it's Key Largo, the Humphrey Bogart film. Haven't you seen that? You know, I don't think Dave had, but uh, <laughs> there you go. You know, he wasn't so, raised watching movies. So what happened? How does the journey uh, with you? Uh, so what happened? Oh, okay. Well, you know, I was a true believer in the purpose of the films, and after a while, particularly with films like um, Marriage Retreat, when it's just a ripoff, you know, it's just like. And, like, there was no message in the film that was of any value other than, you know, husbands love your wife, wives be submissive to your husband. I'm like, really? We're going to build a whole film about that? You know, and it's sort yeah. of like, um, you know, it's you know, it's like, and he wanted it to be much more of a ripoff than it ended up. And, but, yeah. and then there was like, you know, it became so much that I am just devoting myself to this man's ego. And I did this um, film called Run On, which was a three-piece. In addition to being a movie star, David also wanted to be able to do like a one-man show. So we had written, our film that we wrote, Holy Man Undercover, was his original one-man show that he performed at churches and groups and all about his, it's sort of a really exaggerated version of his leaving, you know, coming from, you know, Mennonite country to going to Hollywood and his immersion in, into that life and um but this but this started so wanted, as uh but it started as a one-man show and you helped and we we yeah we converted it into a series and right. let me just okay well let me tell you this this i should have um 
I should have known what kind of people I was dealing with based on this. And, you know, I'm talking about my own experiences and I got paperwork to back it up. So I feel comfortable talking about this. So yeah. we're going to do, um, you know, this would be our third contract because we were contracted to a Christian, a Christmas movie that they were going to get John Tesh in that never got made. And, um, but so this holy man undercover. So we're getting the, you know, um, we're getting the, you know, um, we we get the contract for the initial scripts, and Dave and it's like, hey guys, do you mind if I mainly pay you as producers and not as writers? The amount had already been agreed on, but we hadn't gotten the contracts yet. And I said, um, sure, I don't care, I don't care, you know, you know what pocket or bucket you put the money in, you know, I don't care at all. Yeah, as long as we're talking about the same money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. As long as we're talking about the same money. So, um, you know, we get the contracts, we sign them, I send them back, the executed agreements. And I go, oh, so um, I go, Dave, why did you want to pay us as producers, mainly and not writers? He goes, oh, well, I have a deal with um, the woman who wrote, um, you know, um, the woman who wrote the one man show that it was made into the movie. She would get the same, paid the same amount of money as the screenwriters. Huh. So essentially, he was paying us less to cheat her out of money. <laughs> and since yeah. we weren't really actively producing the film, that should have been all I'd known. And I forgot what her name is, but she's the daughter of that great director producer that was making all those great 70 films like Q. Yeah. Cohen, what's his name? Um, he was oh, making a lot of horror films, uh, Maniac Cops. Um, Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen. Well, yeah. It's a, it's a, you know. it's alive, and uh, yeah, it's alive. I think the she's his daughter. And, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So, okay. um, you know, so um, I should have been shocked by that, but you know, I felt bad that, and I'm like, I was complicit in cheating this woman out of money. You know what I mean? But then, yeah. you know, so this holy man undercover was filled with sex and drugs. You know, because it's you know. You know, all the stuff you can't show in Christian films. And we tamed it down considerably for the script because I knew this wasn't going to play, you know, with the audience. And so Pure Flix, his partners read it. And um, his partners read it and they said, no, we're not going to do this movie. You know, it's not going to be successful. It's going to be, you know, it's going to lose money. And um, David called us and said, that's what they said. And he goes, and I go, so what does that mean? He goes, he goes, well, let's produce it ourselves. I'm like, can you do that? And he goes, yeah, I can do that. They, you know, pure, my contract with Pure Flix says, you know, I have right of first refusal. They have right mm-hmm. of first refusal. They've refused it. Now I can make it. I'm like, right. He goes, so he's like, so if you and me and the three of us, you know, me, you know, um, and me and my partner writing, he goes, we can produce it and we'll own, we'll split, we'll split the film three ways, you know, you know, of the producer share, you know, 33 and a third, 33 and a third, 33 and a third, you know, right. if we can come up with the money. Well, well, I came up with all of the money. Now I did not get a written agreement on this. Well, you know, Dylan Christians, uh-huh. they got to trust them, you know? So, so I, a guy who was going to invest in another film, a non Christian film, that I was writing and he didn't like that deal and pulled out 
I said, oh, by the way, would you like to read this? And he read it, and this guy is an atheist, but he thought it was a very funny script. And it was a very funny movie, I will say, in its original formation. You know, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he said, yeah, I'll invest in this. And he was also investing in like the, um, you know, the great um, cult film Black Dynamite at the same time and all. He did like three films back to back, and this was one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this shot at the same time as um, Black Dynamite. And um, so he came up with the whole budget. So suddenly, you know, it looks like things are going to go really well. But then I get a phone call from um, David A.R. White saying, hey, I got some bad news. I misread my contract. I go, what do you mean? He goes, they own this film. He goes, um, you know, um, you know, you know, pure flicks own this film, owns this film. And I'm like, so what does that mean for us? I mean, we came up and he's like, I got, I got you. I got you some points on it. I go, well, how many? He goes, you and Tim can split three points. Oh my gosh. I said three points. I go, I thought that's a point and a half a piece. It's not even, it's not even like two, it's not even two full points a piece. He goes, I, yeah. he goes, I know you're feeling bad. He goes, but you know, and he always did this. Anytime there was a horrible deal like this, he always blamed it on his partner. He was always, he, he was the good guy. They were the evil guys, <clears throat> you know? And it's like, he goes, you're being cheated out of your script. He goes, but look at me. I'm being cheated out of a lot more than you are. Because this is my life story, and they're and they're cheating me out of my own life story. And I'm like, oh wow, I didn't look at it that way, you know. And then he's mm-hmm. like, well, I tell you what, I can get you two points more, but you get it up to five if you kick back one point to me. Wow, I don't have that in writing. So I said, no, I can't. Do, I'm not going to do that. Because at that time, I assumed the film was going to make millions of dollars. I mean, I wouldn't have done it anyway. But then it's like, what, I'm going to get income? Tim and I are going to get income that we're going to have to pay taxes on. And then we're going to have to kick it back to him in some nefarious way where he's not going to pay taxes on it. No, I'm not going to ever get in that sort of situation. You know what I mean? So that should have been enough for me. But, um, you know, there there was another bunch of nefarious stuff going on with um, this pilot we did for Up TV, which uh, at the time was the gospel music channel called Brother White. There was some stuff I, uh, you know, that, you know, I was not satisfied with at that point. But then it all came to a head when I made these um, end times from Revelation Road. You know, um, before Mm -hmm. I made these films, he said um, I could have... um, I could either have, but what I was getting at this point were five net points per film. Right. Which, you know, yeah. and essentially those are like, usually in Hollywood, you'll never see it spent on net points, you know, because you're working for a production company. So essentially you're getting the net points of what the production company gets. But, you know, I'm essentially working for the distributor. I mean, so it's yeah. not, there's more chance of actually getting paid on those net points. And by this time, I was actually getting paid on a couple of the films, you know, getting quarterly checks for and still do on um, net points. So now they've changed their paperwork that I'm going to be getting the checks once a year, I think, now. So I should start posting that. I should start posting those. You know, they're not <laughs> my contract. They're not considered um, proprietary. So but someone advised me, yeah, people aren't other 
producers aren't going to like it that you could work with. So I'm going to do it, but I'm going to obscure the name of the company and the um, and the name of the film. But I probably will be posting them just so people get an idea of how the money works. Because, you know, I do like screenwriting advice and things like that. I think this would be illuminating. Right. So, but what they offered me, what David offered me was either five net points or two gross points after distribution fee, after, you know, product distribution fee, which was 10% on this project. So I could either get five net points on everything after, you know, everything's paid off or get um, two cents on every nine, on every 90 cents. Mm. You know, I thought it was a trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I actually called some people and asked for advice. But, um, you know, I got to take gross points. So I took the gross points and um, we made the films. And the, and, and the film, the script I wrote was ultimately expanded. They shot, you know, because the director shot it so, shot so much stuff. He also co-wrote the script. And... Um, and so the credits were me and the director, and we kind of worked separate. We worked separately, and um, I wrote it. He rewrote it, and yeah. it, the film was so long; it was long for a Christian film. So they decided to break it in half, and we wrote you know some additional scenes that would be in the second part of the film. So essentially, yeah. now I have gross points on two movies. You know, the Revelation Road, the beginning of the end. And the sequel, Revelation Road, Sea of Glass, and Fire. So um, mm. I have two points now. At the, around the time that the movie came out, and this before God's Not Dead was pretty wide distribution because it was out in Redbox, it was in Walmart, it was in Target, you know. So it was, yeah. you know, it was around, you know. And you're a filmmaker; you understand if you're making reasonably low budget films. And it's in all those places, you know, that's, that's pretty good. So, um, so, um, around that time, you know, as around that first quarter was coming up after that movie was released, I get a call from the accountant and he's like, Oh, do you have the executed agreement? I forgot what film it was, maybe in the blink of an eye or something, you know, because that movie has gone into profit and we can't find an executed contract for it. You know, they had the contract, but not signed by both sides. And I go, yeah, I have it. I'll, I'll, I'll fax you a copy of it. And they, and mm-hmm. I go, no, by the way, you know, I'll be getting paid on um, Revelation Road this quarter, too. And it's like, no, it's not profit yet. And I go, no, I have gross points. And they're like, no, you have net points on that film. I'm like, ooh, I beg uh. to disagree. So I sent an email <laughs> to um, David and the partners of the company and saying, hey, they're saying I have um, – I have net points, but I have gross points, you know, after, you know, 90% of this. And I get a call from David. He goes, uh, Sean, um, I tell you what, um, you know, yeah, you have, you have the gross points, but, you know, um, let's talk about renegotiating this. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, the producer's, you know, afraid he's not going to make any money on this and he's going to. Oh, when he originally offered me the um, two points versus the five points, he said it was the producers asked me to do this. You know, that the producer, this was the producer's idea to give me this deal, one or the choice. And he's like, you know, we're not, he's not going to, he's going to flip out if he sees, you know, you know, because we may not make money back on this and you're getting gross points. He's going to flip out, which I knew was a lie because 
at that time we were, you know, he had already agreed to do the sequel. I don't think the sequel is completed yet, but at least in right, post right. yet. But so it was, it was obviously, you know, just a lie. And I said, and I just couldn't believe he wanted to renegotiate after the fact. So I'm like, well, let me think about it. And, um, I get another email because I had sent this email out. I had forwarded an email from the accountant to like Russ and Mike and David. And, um, and, um, and the accountant said something to me. So I sent another email to everybody and said, look, I have gross points on this film. You know, I, yeah. you know, period. I, you know, Full this stop, guy period. is like saying I'm a liar. Yeah. And so David emailed me back and thank God he did. He goes, emailed me back at everybody and say, yes, Sean does have gross points on this film, but we're talking about renegotiating them. And then he called me up because Sean, why'd you send that email out? Because we're talking. I go, I go, um, yeah, but you know, the, the accountant's like, ignore him. And, and I'm like, you know, this, you know, the guy's saying I'm a liar. He goes, Sean, I just want to tell you something. He goes, I don't care what I said to you personally or what's written in those contracts. We are never going to pay those points. So you're going to have to take the neck points or talk to someone else or talk to someone, meaning a lawyer. Right. Now, this is like the 11th completed film I've written for him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Every other time it was always, hey, Sean, you know, I'm sorry this is happening, but, you know, my partner, Scott, you know, I'm going to make it up to you on the next deal. This is the this was it was Bassini the whole all the time. You know what I mean? Moment yeah. for me. So um so, you know, I at that time, you know, you can't really sue over this. Yeah. Because you don't know at that time I didn't realize I'd be able to get a, a lawyer on commission. Yeah. So, you know, because otherwise I was counting, you know, what am I going to pay someone $100 an hour to sue them? And then when they finally, they opened the books, you know, if they were willing to do this about my contract, how honest are their books? I'm not saying they had dishonest books. I'm just saying this was my fear. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and it's sort of like, it's not worth, I could literally, even if their books were honest, I could literally spend more money suing them than my two points were worth. Absolutely. So basically, I took the five points and and said I wanted some cash too and took like $5,000 or something like that. And, you know, that was it. And at that point, I still had um, like three other projects under commission. And, I you know, I was going to honor my agreements. The only one of them that interested me was a second sequel to The Encounter. And of of those films, it might have been actually four films, you know, um, that was the only one I was interested in pursuing. One was the third feature, was the third installment of Revelation Road, and two other, yeah, it was on four films, and two others were like um, Women in Jeopardy thrillers that never got produced. The Encounter was the only one, The Encounter 3 was the only one I wanted to um, do because we were going to yeah. go to breakfast club again, which I had already figured out. So, um, so but then they gave that one to my former partner as so I had zero interest in doing these other ones, but I finished them anyway. I honored my agreements and um, that was it. You know, I haven't worked for them since. 
But then I got caught up in the uh, God's Not Dead lawsuit um, that um, Brad, the Christian comedian Brad Stein and John Sullivan sued PureFlix on. And I got caught up in that in a witness, as a witness. And then they because really hated me your... because... What? Well, the art gets to a place where it's certainly not fulfilling. And then these business practices after 11 scripts. I mean, the, the story is the old, the old thing, you know, the fish rots from the head down, you know? Um, yeah. So this is really, really bad news, but you get caught up in this other lawsuit with this film that you had nothing to do with. God's not dead. Well, whether uh, I had anything to do with it <clears throat> was the, ultimately the, the, as a result of the lawsuit. Cause the, here's, here's the background of the God's not dead lawsuit. Brad, uh, yeah, Stein, thank you. The Christian, the Christian comedian, and John L. Sullivan had this treatment called Proof, and it's about you know based on some news story, um, you know based on some idea that this kid is going to get failed if he doesn't you know because he believes in God from this um, atheist professor, and Brad Stein sort of like he always viewed himself as his character, it's sort of like Robin Williams' character in. Um, Dead Poet Society, Dead Poet Society, idolized, yeah. and he's a Christian, but he's in a precarious situation because he doesn't have tenure and his wife is pregnant. And when his student, one of his favorite students, who's like he's a counselor too, is going to be failed by this other professor, he has to have a debate with him about the existence of God, mm-hmm. whether God exists. So they, you know, he presented this to Pure Flix, and by this time, Brad had all. I Tim and I had almost worked on a project with Brad outside of Pure Flicks previously. And then he was an actor in um, our film, Sarah's Choice. He was in on this film, um, One On. <clears throat> and he was in another Pure Flix film called, he was in Marriage Retreat, and he was also in another Pure Flix film, Christmas with a capital C. So, um, you know, he was, he presented this idea and, a treatment. I don't know how many pages it was. Five pages. It was more detailed than normal treatment. So um, Tim and I converted it to a feature, and it was greenlit. You know, we hmm. went through like two revisions with with Dave, and I believe. And it's and called. And we were and told it's called. Just, and it's called proof, proof at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're doing this, and we have so many projects going on. We don't. You know, it's like, and we're like, well, we got to do the next draft approved. And they're like, hey, work on this. This is more important. This and that. It's like, hey, deal with Brad about that later. You know, this is what we have to do first. And suddenly it kind of went from green to red. And, you know, we have no idea why we're so busy doing so many projects. We can't follow it. And then I hear um, Tommy Blaze, I think later became, um, you know, head of development. I get a call from him. He says, Sean. Did you hear about um, God's Not Dead? And I go, no, what's that? He goes, it's another project doing. It's proof. I'm like, oh, really? He goes, yeah. Huh. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, for me, I didn't take, you know, because it was a commission piece. Now, we had points on it, you know, if it got made. But to me, it's sort of like, hey, I got paid, you know. They can do whatever they yeah. want. And then, you know, a little while later, I get a you know, call from Brad. It's like, Hey, do you have any of those old emails about proof? 
And I'm like, yeah, I have every email. I have every email. I still do. <laughs> right. And I'm like, uh, he's like, could you send me some of them? Could you forward some of them to me? And I'm like, sure. And then he's like, he's like, look, I'm suing them over proofs. And I, and after my dealings with them, I couldn't say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you would think they would be dishonest. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? And he's like, would you help me out? And I'm not, I'm not telling you everything, you know, because I don't want to damage anyone else. <laughs> but um, so yeah, so eventually I was contacted by his lawyers too, and they're like, and I'm like, yeah, I'll send you anything, you know. It right. kind of it was. Um, so um, when they sued Pure Flix, it was obvious that they had gotten this information, you know, from because right. they had, you know, because strangely, I believe later Pure Flix, all their emails, a lot of them were. Um, had been lost in some sort of, you know, computer snafu. So a lot of these emails existed, uh, from what I understand, maybe hearsay, existed only because I kept copies of them, you know. But um, so I, you know, they eventually, you know, PureFlix lawyers and my, and I hired Brad's lawyer to be my lawyer because I had this mm-hmm. deposition. It was yeah. an eight-hour deposition. It was a seven-hour deposition because we did have lunch break. And it was about the most vicious thing I had ever participated in. It was monstrously hateful. You know, I mean, they were tearing into me. The last hour, uh, Pure Flix lawyer was essentially threatening me, you know. So, you know, they would, because they had very wide discovery on me. It's sort of like anything involving God's Not Dead, any email with anybody, any discussion of the movie, any discussion of anyone had seen it, any discussion, any text message, any Twitter, any Facebook thing, you know, just Mm. gathering all that stuff. And it was really terrible because a lot of other like filmmakers who work with Pure Flix and writers who work with Pure Flix were like sending me confidential stuff, you know, asking about, you know, Pure Flix, do you think they did this? Do you think they did that? You know, yeah. like all my because, dogs. Because most of us <laughs> who work in this industry, we do not spend half our day talking to lawyers and accountants, our lawyers and accountants, and the other half doing the work. We yeah. we work in trust and blindness and uh, how vile and particularly bitter uh, that it is a company called Pure Flix that is making... Yeah faith-based films. So and there was one in particular. So at the end, you know, after they asked me these questions and I, you know, I did not do any, I did not have any preliminary thing with my lawyer. I took him out to breakfast. He flew in, he flew in from California. I picked him up at the airport, went to the bite and sip or whatever. And I did not say like, <laughs> what should I say? What, you know, what do you want me to say? Because I'm, you know, I, I didn't want anyone to tell me what I should say because I'm there to tell the truth. You know, I just right. wanted, you know, you know, just to have a lawyer there in case, they, you know, you're trying to trick me or something. But I did right. talk to one person, you know, who was on a deposition and they said, you know, even if you're telling the truth, after a while, you're going to feel like you're lying because they come at, they're <laughs> gonna, you know, they're, at this point, this stuff was like three or four years old. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. By the time they're talking to me, really, they had hundreds of pages of emails and like various versions of the script. They had like every like script and all the notes on it and all. And they're asking you like, you know, 
what about this version? Who contributed this? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like, you know, yeah, this, yeah. you know, this person do this, this person do that. But when I came after lunch, after I came back, the last hour, now normally what they would do is they would, you know, because there was a court stenographer who goes, I want this put in the evidence, like an email. And then they would ask me a bunch of questions about an email. Then they'd do this script and they'd say, I want this read in this evidence, you know, and the thing. And, and then at the end, they started putting up all these things and accusing, they would like hold something up to me like a blog and said, Mr. Murphy. Are you familiar with the definition of slander? Like some unpublished wow. blog that I had sent around for fact checking. And I, right. you know, I took business law. I understand what the definition of slander. I would open my mouth. The response of my lawyer would say, "Calls for objection. Calls for a legal opinion." And they would hold the same thing up against it. Mister Murphy, are you familiar with the definition of libel? And I, you know, yeah, I know the definition. Before I could open my out my. my my mouth, my lawyer would say, uh, objection calls for a legal opinion. And, you know, they and they were doing this on tons of emails and messages and this and that, you know. And after about the uh, first half hour of this, my lawyer, like, called for a break. So, yeah, we had to make a restroom break. So we're walking out of the thing. And he goes, and my lawyer just starts laughing. And, I, and, I, and he goes, man, they're really threatening you in there. And I said, you noticed? And, and he keeps laughing. <laughs> and I said, do I have anything to worry about? And he said, absolutely not. He goes, yeah. you can't afford to let any of that stuff come out that they're threatening you with. He goes, I said, so I'm not going to get in any trouble. He goes, and he goes, I tell you, he goes, here's, here's my advice to you. If you talk about it, never talk about hearsay, what other people saying, like if someone else told you that they were cheated or someone else told you about this horrible thing that happened. Never say anything about that. He goes, but if you're talking about your own experiences, you know, you're going to yeah. be okay. And he knew I had emails, you know, so it's sort of like PureFlix does want to say that they didn't want to change from the points two to five. I got that email from Dave saying that I did have those. And I have the pre-contract and the second revised contract, you know. You know, right, so, right. you know, they want to come after me, fine. You know, I'm I'm cool with that. And it got so bad that when we came back, it was like the lawyer at one point just looks up at me and says, Mr. Murphy, are you aware that people who say bad things about their employers never work in this business again? (laughs) (laughs) At that, I almost wanted to laugh because at that time I'm working for Discovery. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, um, my wife says I'm working too much. I've worked every day since. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And, you know, and, and just the image of it, I think he, he went too far with that. <clears throat> just the image that the heads of like um, Paramount and Universal and Sony and MGM UA and CBS and all these people were all like gathering at, you know, in some smoke filled room and saying, you know what, we got to get together and protect David A.R. White and Pure Flix. We must destroy anyone who says anything bad about pure flicks. You know, just, just, you know, that is just, was just absurd. And then I also realized something, you know, once this guy, once he was done and I was nice because this guy had flown in too. And I offered, you know, I was giving my lawyer a ride to the airport. I said, Hey, I'm taking him to the airport. You want me to give you a ride too? And he's like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll find my own ride. You know, so um, I was trying to be nice, but, um, one thing I realized was 
these things that he was threatening me with libel with and things like that, he wasn't reading, he wasn't giving them to the stenographer to be put in for like evidence. You know, he was just holding them up. He was, yeah, he was yeah. never saying what I said on these things. Right. You know, surely so, pure, I mean, pure threat, pure bluff. Yeah. You know, so it, yeah, but it, in a sense, it's, you know, it, I feel bad because I felt like I have been silenced, but basically yeah. I've been expecting to be called as a witness in this case. So yeah. I decided I wasn't going to talk about it. I wasn't going to talk about my dealings with Pure Flicks with anyone publicly, you know, right. because I wanted it. I wanted to go into that courtroom with just public what was already in my record, you know. In the stuff yeah, I what was in the public week. record was in the public record, but this you were coming in clean. You you were coming yeah, in. So, you, you would be able to testify, you know, clean with with internal dealings and and. And I didn't want to make it look facts. like I was going around the town, <laughs> bad mouthing them, you know. Right. Then it would it would invalidate my testimony as just somebody with a grudge. Right. You know, but now that the case has been resolved, I feel perfectly free in talking about it. But here's the thing. Now I don't want to talk about it because when I say something bad about Pure Flix, it gives the wrong impression because yeah. Pure Flix is now Sony Affirm. Yeah. And from my understanding, I've never worked personally with Sony Affirm, but everybody I know who's worked with them, that's been a fine ethical company. So, um, you know, I can't say anything about Pure Flix. You know, because, um, you know, they're, you know, Pure Flix is now associated with Sony Affirm, and I'm not going to, I don't want to diminish them or diminish their property or what they're planning right. to do with the streaming service. You know, so, so that's, so that's the position I find myself in. But occasionally I'll talk to Mark Redfield on our podcast. You know, <laughs> maybe some things come out. <clears throat> And and then we'll so this sure is the I will say this is the most public on the discussion of these issues. And you know what I have you know. Would I ever are you asking are you asking again? my? Yeah, I, are you asking my wrap up question? I mean, you obviously have a faith based script in in potential play as we claw our way slowly into production post or or very cautiously uh, with COVID-19 living with us. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, the players change. Maybe the faith-based industry, there have been some very good players. Maybe there have been some not so good players. Maybe there needs to be a Ten Commandments in the industry. Uh, Thou shalt not steal, cheat out of points. (laughs) And and I don't mean faith-based, I mean the entire independent, uh, the entire entertainment industry. But yeah, that's kind of where I want to wrap up. I've been fascinated by your career, uh, uh, particularly in, in, in faith-based screenwriting. Um, you know, I know that you have had your heart in it because it's, it's not just, Oh, look, they're making money over there. I can, I can, I can yeah. invent something that fits their criteria, you know, for what they need to sell to their customers. But um, it hasn't, I mean, that's basically how I'd like to wrap this up is ask you two things. Um, okay. Do you have some 
faith-based things that you would like to do in the future? Has it really soured you? Or have you, you know, uh, and what, what advice would you give to someone who smells money over in the faith-based film industry and says, oh, maybe I could write a script for them and make some money? I know that's a three-parter that's kind of involved, but... Okay, well, for, the, for those that want to try to break in, I would say it's harder now because there's less opportunity because the stakes have gotten so high. You know, right. basically, you have, you're writing, you have to, if your film, you're just going to be a bottom feeder unless um, your film goes theatrical, you know, there's really nothing, there's really no there there anymore because all that yeah. money that, you know, you could get from this. So, you know, you have to have a script. And I write this, I wrote um, an answering blog to someone who wrote about the faith-based filmmakers know their films are bad. And I wrote that, um, you know, we are now you can't just write a faith-based film and compare it to other faith-based films because like pure flicks did a movie um, of Samson. It was released the same week as, as um, black Panther. So as yeah. they releasing a faith-based film, it is competing. You know, you are in the marketplace competing with mainstream films because you're going to theaters now. So, yeah. you know, you have to up your game. <clears throat> the little films that people used to make, you know, in the nineties and in the, um, the aughts and the early part of the teens, <clears throat> you know, they're not going to fly anymore. You no. can make them, but you know, you're not going to get wide distribution, you know? So to me, I have no desire to make films that people aren't going to see. I, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm going to say this. I'm glad I worked for pure flicks because, you know, they, you know, their films got out, you know, people saw them. They did some good, you know, whether Pure Flix was corrupt or the best company in the world, at least they got some stuff out there, you know, and that yeah. did some good. And, you know, I would say that I was disappointed by one way or another on every film I did. I, there's like, there's like four that I honestly enjoy that I can turn on and watch. And, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's, that's the nature of being, Unless you're producing your own screenplay and possibly yeah. directing it, that's what you lose as a screenwriter. This, that's the history yeah. of screenwriting in the 20th and early 21st century. We have so little control. Anyway. Um, but that's why I'm writing books now. That's why I prefer books. <laughs> and at least even if I make a movie of it, and I'm going to put out a blog about that, I have my book. Because people are interested yeah. in Chapel Street. I have people who are interested in it. And it's sort of like, you know, they don't want to make changes, but at least I have my vision realized. Exactly. You know, yeah. and um, there's another, I could probably write another couple faith films, but they would not be like the kind of films that they're writing for Pure Flix. Mine would be yeah. much more mainstream. And there's no reason yeah. it shouldn't be, because before there was this genre, People in Hollywood were interested in my scripts that had faith aspects to them. But the problem is now, if there's a faith aspect to a script, they look at it as having a ceiling. They didn't in the 80s, and they didn't in the 90s. Right. So in a sense, the limitations that the faith-based market put on itself limits you know, what you, you know, how high you can go. 
And this is this is historically the problem, I think, uh, and it comes from marketing and the distribution side of motion pictures. The the growth and solidification of genres become ghettos. I mean, remember in the early 20th century, way before our time, there were there wasn't a horror film genre. They were all sort of lumped into mystery films, even the universal yeah. gothic horrors. Um, Westerns, you know, became a genre by the 1920s. I mean, sure, there were brought, there were dramas, there were comedies, but you could have so much color in a story and you could touch on so many different things. It really is horrifyingly unfortunate that it is, in the late 20th century with the growth of home video to just sort all of this crap out for a viewer that uh, these minutia genres, and then of course they're, they're self-serving as money-making things, um, you know, but you don't have, um, you don't have uh, the equivalent would be like Seinfeld being, the Jewish TV comedy and a, on a Jewish cable station, you know, yeah. you don't have that kind of narrow focus to create a genre specifically for a group of people. Um, and I, and I find that a, I find that a, a bit strange and I'm encouraged that you just, let me paraphrase, let me put words in your mouth. You just want to tell okay. good stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they just might happen to have, some elements that work perfectly in the faith-based film industry. But I think what you're about is you just have stories you want to tell. Uh, and they're about all kinds of people and all kinds of things, regardless of. Exactly. Their- and also too, to me, when you're dealing with a full character, you're dealing with any character, whether it's an action film, it's a Western, a character has a worldview. There's usually some sort of moral code, like even in a film noir, you know, there's a yeah. moral code. And to me, the spirituality is often a way of addressing the moral code. And it's sort of like, you know, it's an it's an aspect of a character. And I think your characters aren't as rich if you're going to just ignore that aspect of them. You know, it, you know, exactly. You don't always yeah. need all of that. Like in Maltese Falcon, you don't need to know whether um, Sam Spade had been married before or. You know, was he an only child? You know, you go through these exercises in some of these screenplay books where you, you build their whole biography. But as the writer of it, you have to know, you know, what is his moral code? How is it formed? What events yeah. and what things does he believe that do that? You know, and to cut out to say spirituality or faith or moral code, you know, and saying, oh, you know, that's off limits you know, I think is the diminishment of the character and the diminishment of cinema, you know. Absolutely. But then again, if that's all it is, then you're making, you know, know, then you fall into the faith-based category. And, you know, you know, basically they're making films to a small but active market. But it's no different than horror films. Like, um, you know, there are certain people, you know, who I've met through you, some of them, you know, at festivals and all, who are making only making films for hardcore horror films in certain yeah, subgenres. They, there is a formula that 
uh, is not just a creative one, but is a business one. They know uh, they know how much money a film will make if it delivers a certain kind of thing. All of it is a risk, of course. Uh, speaking to future potential investors out there, all of it is a risk. But yeah, um, there are few other genres. There isn't a thriving independent musical genre, although there are independent musicals that we haven't heard about yet that get made and get put yeah. into festivals. It tends to be what people think in shorthand are a shorter road to making money and a return on a film. Um, And yeah, I mean, the straighter, quieter drama is going to be the hardest row to hit. And the gulf in the early, here we are, you know, in 2021, the first quarter of the 21st century, and the gulf between so-called Hollywood, the major players, which are now including streaming services like Netflix, uh, direct-to-streaming that Disney is producing, the gulf is wider than ever uh, between... Yeah, and even the even the major studios aren't making those like traditional mainstream dramas. Oh, no, they're not. No, not at all. You I know, like disappeared. an ordinary people would not be put out by Paramount this year. You know what I mean? Exactly. Or even it's a... Big Chill would not be put out. No, you these know. films may uh, be co-financed by a couple of companies and end up on and then know, maybe being produced by Netflix. Amazon or Netflix or something. But yeah. um, you know, even it's there's a dollar bottom line with them. Well, I'm looking forward to your next films. I I I, I, I personally miss filmmaking, uh, uh, but uh, keep writing novels too, where you're. Yeah. Um, looking forward to uh, what comes after Chapel Street. So um, thanks for talking about your experiences in the Christian film market and uh, screenwriting. And I'm sure that we will in some future chat talk something more about writing and about screenwriting and the nuts and bolts of things. But uh, this was important to, uh, I've been fascinated by the journey that you took over the years. Oh, it's, it's been a long, strange scripts. trip, as the Grateful Dead said. You know, a long, <laughs> strange trip it's been. And it's not over yet, so onward we go. It's not over yet. As always, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Uh, I want to thank Sean Paul Murphy for sitting down and uh, telling us about his adventures in screenwriting in the faith-based film industry. We have so many more wonderful interviews lined up for you. Conversations with creators, with actors, musicians, filmmakers, writers, and so much more. We have some special things coming up on the podcast that we've been working on in the last few months, and we hope that you enjoy them. This is Mark Redfield. Stay safe. Until next time.